Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. It's Tuesday. You're watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Brian Karam. Watching this administration try to take the high road on civility is both laughable and tragic. Ooh, Kashana had this to say. They called it the Civil War because everyone on both sides was nice. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. I remember that. I remember that chapter from U.S. history. Yes, yeah. the Civil War. They were, like, folding their <laughs> napkins properly. There was a lot of curtsying. The That's Civil it. War. I got to say, so many days in the last couple of months, one of my waking thoughts has been, all of y'all owe Michelle Wolf an apology. Mm. I think the hand-wringing and going after Michelle Wolf for the way she masterfully, like, analyzed Sarah Huckabee Sanders' effectiveness in terms of spinning media has just continued to be prescient and accurate. Mm -hmm. Like, well, look what she's done. Think about everything that was happening just last week and the, the rightful outrage and complexity of what we were talking about um, regarding what's going on at the border. Again, and, and how that story just stayed with the stayed news cycle, with the day news. after day. Yes, 2,000 children still not reunited with their family. We're going to talk more about that. Um, and then just with one tweet, mm. with one tweet from her official account, not her personal, personal account, account mm. Sarah Huckabee Sanders went, watch what I can do now. <laughs> and the news cycle is moved. <laughs> Think about this. Just last week, we're not even a full week away from Corey Lewandowski uh, saying womp, womp. We're mm. not even that far away from Sarah Huckabee Sanders herself looking at Jim Acosta in the eye during a White House press briefing and saying, I know you don't understand simple sentences but dot dot civility all of a sudden we're all talking about <laughs> civility and that's incredible and it's a lot of talking heads it's a lot of pundits and it's a lot of white males it's a all, lot of white people it's all of a sudden just being very much like oh well are we being polite enough what? all this giant conversation mm -hmm. about politeness and i do i think it's masterful like you're saying all of a sudden all this focus is on her on the red hen also the other red hen in dc yeah. people are like oh we're worried Mad. about the other red hen Mad. oh they have the same logo all these conversations about this and none of them on these the conversation on what really matters right now I did share a thread this morning on my timeline I recommend you go read it um, but it's basically this author who stayed with a French family in the 90s and was an exchange student and all of a sudden slowly realized that the house she was staying in uh, the, the the matriarch the grandmother mm -hmm. had been a Nazi sympathizer and she sat down and she asked her how why mm -hmm. and the grandmother said politeness the Nazis when they occupied France it was, everything was so peaceful, and they were all so polite. The word was poli, and she went and looked it up in her French English dictionary, and she sat down and cried. The author cried because it was politeness, politeness, politeness. Whew. All right, and to that point, here's a tweet from Ashley Nicole Black, wonderful writer. Um, oh, shit, is Sarah Huckabee Sanders a genius? Now we're all arguing about how she should be treated. Meanwhile, the government still has the over 2,000 children we were so mad about last week mm. and no plans for how mm. to reunite them with their families. Again, masterful good morning to Michelle Wolf because she was like, listen, you yeah, instead of talking about basically the fact that there is an inherent story of violence in civil disobedience, mm -hmm. in civil rights fights, mm -hmm. there has never been a place for politeness. Mm -hmm. hmm. And Sarah's eyeshadow remains unbothered. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What's a moment of civil disobedience from history that was really impactful for you? Uh, let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. And I will say this, listen, y'all got me smooth fucked up. If you think I'm going to forget that, it is still, you know, June, it is still Pride mm -hmm. Month. And that celebration mm -hmm. um, is based, forget what all the corporations want us to believe, that celebration was based on a riot at Stonewall that was not polite. That 
that was not civil. It was rooted in civil dis disobedience. So that's my history moment. What about you? I'm listening. The Freedom Riders, like, there's just so many instances where there's been violence on all sorts of different sides. Violence enacted on protesters and their ability. Like, you can't ask people that are fighting for their lives, fighting for their children, to hold back and say please and thank you. I'm sorry. Not here for it. Not here for it. Well, let's get back to talking about the family separation crisis at the border. Yeah, honestly, if a person doesn't understand what's going on is wrong, I think there's something wrong with them. Like, they need to go back inside of themselves and find love for themselves and for everyone. This is totally against love for anyone. That quote is from Bernardo, one of several hundred people who protested outside the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City in response to the Trump administration's policy of separating children from their parents. Bernardo was speaking with BuzzFeed's deputy global news director, Ryan Broderick, who was at the protest and joins us now. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you asked protesters what they wish Americans understood about how it feels watching all of this play out on the other side of the border. Um, what were some of the responses you heard? Well, I mean, it was a lot of frustration. It was a lot of just sort of bewilderment that America would allow this sort of thing to happen. Um, my favorite response I heard was from uh, a man and a wife who said that they were watching TV and it was an American woman protesting uh, in America on the news that inspired them to come out. So I, I thought it was a really interesting moment of solidarity across two countries. And then the most overwhelming thing I heard was just that Americans don't think of people from Mexico as people. And it like breaks their heart and they wanted to come out and they wanted to sort of prove to the world that they're here and they're watching and they're aware of this stuff. Right. And to that point, and I'm glad you're able to join us from Mexico City this morning, um, you know, a lot of these people in this current crisis, these families, are from other countries like Guatemala or the Honduras. So I was wondering, what did you hear from people in Mexico City about how they feel kind of, in a way, being caught in the middle of this back and forth between the United States and Latin America? It was really interesting, actually. A, a young woman I spoke to said that when you cross the border into America, from Central America, you have to go through Mexico City. So a large chunk of the homeless population here, many people assume that they're usually on their way to the U.S. So people in Mexico are very aware of the realities of what this crisis looks like. I mean, they're almost in a certain way mirroring what we're, what we're seeing. You know, the, the people coming through the streets asking for money, making their way out of the city up into the north. Um, I, they have more in common with us than they don't, you know, like. It's their neighbors. Their neighbors. Their neighbors. Ryan, you've been reporting from Mexico City for a little bit now. I just wanted to ask, what has it been like being an American in Mexico City during this time? I mean, it's weird. <laughs> I mean, just as a person, not even as a reporter, like, I mean, the rhetoric in America is so intense that saying the word Mexican makes you feel crazy. Like, it's used as a slur by the right wing and the far right on the internet. I mean, being an American walking around, you can't help but be a spokesperson for your country. And right now it's hard to sort of sit down. Also, my Spanish isn't very good, so I don't really have the uh, diplomatic skills to go into why America is doing what they're doing. And that's the major question you get here is like, why is this happening? Because America is supposed to be like this beacon, this example. So when you're an American overseas in any country, you sort of have to be the spokesperson for whatever's going on at the moment. And it's sort of hard to do that right now here. <laughs> As someone who grew up in Texas, I actually have a, a similar relationship to the word Mexican. Even when it's literally the word you should be using, uh, it was used as a slur so yeah. much when I was growing up. I, I have a bit of an aversion there. I, I also, I guess, wanted to ask you, Ryan, is there a sense of 
do people feel a sense of hopelessness, you know, or, or a sense of hope in terms of, you know, a response that or a possibility that things could change? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I feel like from what I got from the protest, at least, which uh, it, by Mexico standards was fairly small. Um, it was based on a Facebook event. So it was like several hundred people decided to come up the next day. It was more just like a frustration. I don't think the 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 situation has progressed far enough to have some sort of like future sense about what this could mean. Um, I know that it's impacting the election here. I mean, the politicians that are running are using it like nothing else. I mean, anti-Trump is the number one platform for every single politician here. Okay, and to that point, again, these elections in Mexico are scheduled to be held next week. Um, and, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. What do you think the outcome of those elections could have on what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border? Well, um, like I said, I mean, every single person running. So what's crazy is this election is uh, not just an election for their presidency. It's an election for almost every single governmental seat at once. It's sort of a historic moment in Mexico, which means on July 2nd, there will be a brand new everything here politically. Um, the front runner is a guy they, affect, they, they call AMLO, um, Andreas Manuel uh, Labrador. Um, and you should... Read up on him. Um, Carla Zabludowski, a reporter for BuzzFeed News, has been covering him intensely. Um, but I think AMLO will win. I think it's also fair to sort of, for Americans who aren't really following this, I would describe AMLO as if Bernie Sanders spoke like Donald Trump. What? And he, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Play that yeah, back yeah, for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. Say that again. <laughs> so uh, AMLO, he's a, he's a left-wing populist. So he's like if a Bernie Sanders figure was sort of a troll. Like Donald Trump. All right. And, and, and can you talk he's going to win, probably. And he's most likely going to win. I have read a little bit about tech fears coming out of this election, too. Can you speak a little bit about that, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, uh, Cambridge Analytica, when they were sort of exposed in the UK and the US, they were also working here. There's a huge culture of fake news, huge culture of misinformation, dark campaigns. It's really hard uh, on the internet here to understand like what's going on. Most uh, tech activists I've spoken to estimate that 90% of the trending topics here are fake, um, like just being manipulated by bots or digital marketing firms or whatever, what have you. So it is sort of hard to understand what's going on. And I've also been warned as an outsider sort of watching this election that there will be a brief period where every politician sort of claims that they won. And it will be a little confusing uh, to figure out what's actually going on. And it'll probably take probably till July 2nd till we, we actually know what's happening. But um, yeah, it's a really historic, interesting time here, and everyone is definitely watching what's going on in America and sort of picking and choosing what they're going to do with that politically. Hmm. All right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this morning from Mexico City. Thanks, guys. All right, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News science editor Virginia Hughes. Scott Pruitt had dinner with a bunch of oil and gas executives and, according to these emails, encouraged them to have their people apply for EPA director jobs. So ConocoPhillips sent two resumes. Ooh, Zara Hirji, who reports on climate change for BuzzFeed News, got that scoop and joins us now. Zara, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. How unusual is it for the EPA to reach out to recruit directly from oil and gas companies? Well, in the words of Christine Todd Whitman, who was the head of the EPA at the start of the George W. Bush administration, highly unusual. 
Hi, okay. Highly <laughs> unusual. Yeah, we've lost you visually for a second, but we can still hear you. Oh, there you are. You're back. <laughs> You're okay. back. So, yeah, it's, it seems highly unusual. Um, is it fair to say this is in line with Scott Pruitt's general approach to running the EPA? Yes, this is just the latest example of how Pruitt's EPA has a very close relationship with industry, especially the oil and gas industry. And it's not the first time that it seems like and also internal emails show that him or his staff has been in touch with energy lobbyists, members of the industry, uh, Republican donors uh, for recommendations on who should staff his agency. Uh, I mean, it, it seems a little wild to me that these are the places where they are recruiting. Um, is this, and also Scott Pruitt just, I feel like I keep hearing his name in the news linked to these stories where I'm like, how is this guy still in charge? Uh, so does that surprise you, Zara? There has been unending news about Pruitt's ethics scandals. I know that we've gotten to talk about it a lot in the last couple of months, and it just hasn't stopped. You know, there are questions. They're not just questions. There are more than a dozen federal investigations into his spending on security, on travel, on his treatment of staff. And I think there's a lot of questions from both sides, from everyone really, about how he is still still around. But how this one compares, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think this is a question of did he break the law, which is a question for some of the other outstanding scandals. Um, but it does show just how close uh, his views and his team's relationship is with the industry. Absolutely. And, and you know, listen, I understand that, you know, Washington, D.C. has a complicated relationship to lobbyists and, and, and the back and forth between working in government and working, you know, in coordination with government. But how does, um, you know, Scott Pruitt personally reaching out to oil executives, you know, to say, come on board, come work with us, sync up with Trump's drain the swamp rhetoric? I mean, it just gives the impression that, you know, they're biased, right? Like, and it's one thing if they're actually making the same plea to all different types of groups, are they going out and saying the same thing to a dinner bunch of full of environmentalists? It doesn't seem like that. It seems very targeted. And I think that's the same thing you're seeing in different parts of the administration as well. All right. All right. Well, Zara, uh, thanks for getting that scoop. All right. Shout out to the Freedom of Information Act. And thanks for joining <laughs> us this morning. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, listen, up next, we're going to take a little break, have Woo. some laughs. It's time for Fire Tweets. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Welcome back. You ready to get in some fire tweets? Let's do it. Let's do it. Eden Dranger, you tweeted, thrilled I bought a 55-inch screen so I can listen to it while I stare at a four-inch screen. Drag mm. me, Eden. Mm. Is you that know, you? It's, that's so me. Yeah. I need it. It's fine. You know I watch a lot of TV. It's just a part of the process. Is your TV five. 55 inches? <laughs> Let's get some real answers, ladies and gentlemen. I believe so. You believe so? so. It's not bigger? It's I didn't pretty, know I was going to be asked to fact check. It's a pretty big TV, if I remember TV, correctly. I love, but yeah, you know I'm on my phone constantly. Yeah. And, you know, if you want me to stop looking at my phone, write better dialogue. Wow. Shout out to Westworld. Make, make, make you I'll look up. I'll deal with y'all later. Okay, this tweet is from Sookie. 
The weirdest feeling is when you send someone a text when you're in the middle of emotional breakdown, but they don't reply in time, and when they finally hit you up asking what was wrong, it's not even relevant anymore because you are a calm, collected, bad bitch again. <laughs> That's true, you know. I feel like I'm the one on the other side of this all the time because I do take a little while to respond true. to texts. True, and I'll which is like, why you're not the first person I text when I'm in a crisis. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. But yeah, I'll just be like, oh, is everything okay? Everything all right? Oh my girl, like, I'm at happy hour now. Yeah. Everything's wonderful. It's Everything. I like that you, you made it about yourself. I wasn't going to call you out oh, twice no, in a row. Definitely but me. Super drag, me. Drag yourself. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, you tweeted, baristas are just acoustic bartenders. Mmm. I hate that I got this tweet without hesitation. I love just, it. I love a simple, nice thought. You could just picture walking down the street. Kay was like getting a coffee and was like, wait a second. <laughs> It's true. It's just true. Baristas are just acoustic bartenders. I'm gonna, I feel like it's like it's like a kind of pun, but it's like a, like a, a visual description. <laughs> this is a genre. <laughs> Let of, me know of if a you type can, of tweet. You can Go figure ahead. out how to describe the genre of this type of tweet because mm -hmm. I feel like it's a thing we see. It's like it's uh, what's the word? It's you're looking out into the world. A visual pun? No, it's no. Uh, descriptive. It's descriptive. All I'm <laughs> okay. saying anyway. is if you're a bar barista and you want to get into the electrical world, bartending's fun. <laughs> It's okay. good. This tweet comes from Camilla, and it feels very apt this morning. Because, mm. phew, tweet of the day. Let's, Let's go. Let's do it. Sitting there trying to fix my hair. My nana asked me how to Instagram, and girl, I think the fuck not. We let your generation on Facebook for five minutes <laughs> and got Brexit and Trump. Nah, you better stick to Hotmail before we all die in this mm. bitch. That is absolutely mm. true. Could you imagine what havoc they would wreak? Absolutely Y'all ain't been not. on Facebook but a minute, and look at us. <laughs> Yeah, and we're not even telling you about Snapchat. And y'all just got to Twitter. Don't act <laughs> like y'all ain't acting a fool already. It's, so It's mm -mm. messy. You can take your baby boom elsewhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was already in the with that. when I think it about the baby beautiful. boom. I'm sorry. Well, listen, up next, we're talking to California Congressman Ro Khanna. And we're gonna, we got a lot of questions. We have so many questions. We got a lot of questions. <laughs> For him. Live from the district with Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat from California representing Silicon Valley. Congressman, welcome back to the show. Hello, Congressman, can you hear me? All right, it okay. looks like we're having some audio, some problems audio with difficulties with the Congressman. Well, so we'll get to him in one second. Do you? Yeah, yeah right now, uh, listen, there's some breaking news on the timeline. We've got some time to discuss it. Chris Geithner's tweets. Breaking, the Supreme Court upholds Trump's third travel ban. Chief Justice John Roberts writes the decision, holding in the 5-4 decision that Trump exercised his broad statutory authority to, quote, suspend entry of aliens into the United States. And you better believe we'll be talking with Chris about that yeah. later on the show. Chris was in the Supreme Court earlier this morning, and I'll be mm -hmm. talking to him, I believe, at the end of the show today. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is... Wow. I mean, at least this is the ruling that everyone has kind of been waiting for. Um, and I know Chris was talking about it on the show yesterday, and he was mentioning that maybe we wouldn't see it for another day or two, but it looks like the ruling has now come down. Yeah. And I guess it also speaks, I mean, and we can ask Chris about it later, but it speaks to like the way Trump's language and talking about what's going on uh, with the family separation crisis, like if that was going to impact the travel ban at all. Because we've seen like President's tweets and his rhetoric and speeches often then impacts court decisions mm -hmm. about these travel bans. So, 
I guess now we've seen how this is playing out. Yeah, how it's basically playing out. And, and again, that we're seeing immigration front and center uh, of, of everything that's happening in D.C., it seems to be the national conversation that's happening at this time. Um, and it, especially with the 2018 elections right around the corner, I don't see this conversation going away anytime soon. We still have so many DACA recipients that are in limbo. Now we had the family border separation yeah. crisis happening. Now we have the Muslim ban being upheld 5-4. That is a definitive split of the Supreme Court. So yeah. this is an ongoing conversation that I really think is going to just... It's going to be the front focus of the entire election. Yeah. Uh, well, stay polite out there, because <laughs> as we know, civility is the top priority. No, it's just very surreal. Again, seeing just on all, and I think you're absolutely right, all of these fronts and facets where really immigration um, is just manifesting as something that, you know, we cannot ignore and we really need to keep talking about. But I believe we can see now if we have Congressman Ro Khanna of California with us now. Congressman, can you hear us? I can. Great. Great Good to morning. be back on. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Congressman, we want to start with this breaking news about the Supreme Court decision to uphold Trump's third travel ban. Any reaction to that? Well, it's appalling and so short-sighted. Uh, the ban applies to countries like Yemen. Uh, Yemen, you have the greatest humanitarian catastrophe in the world. So for the United States to say we're not going to take people uh, from Yemen is appalling. It applies to places like Syria, where you have a humanitarian catastrophe. And by the way, uh, which is the origin of Steve Jobs, uh, people who, who founded Apple. And so. Uh, this is such a short-sighted policy. It's not consistent with our Constitution, and it's really disappointing to see justices uh, uphold it. Are you surprised by the Supreme Court decision, Congressman? I am, because uh, I, I thought that someone like Justice Roberts or others would really apply the law, and there is no basis uh, to say that certain countries uh, pose a threat to the United States, uh, which all happen to be Muslim countries. This is basically discrimination based on uh, religion and uh, national origin, and it violates our Constitution. I'm very disappointed in people like Justice Roberts who have chosen to go along with uh, the president instead of applying the law. Well, as Isaac said, there are so many facts to the immigration debate right now in our country. So let's talk about this. Uh, it's been six days since Trump reversed his no-tolerance policy, but of course nearly 2,000 children remain separated from their parents. So what is Congress doing to make sure the administration reunites these children with their families, some of which, of course, are being housed in your home state of California? Well, this has shocked the conscience of our nation and the world. I don't think anyone would have imagined that the United States would ever separate kids, toddlers, three-year-olds, five-year-olds from their mothers and fathers. Uh, we in Congress need to act, and a lot of the Democrats have put forth legislation uh, to get funding uh, to help reunify uh, the, these children with their parents. Jackie Spear uh, has uh, enlisted some of the technology companies to help uh, try to locate through genetic testing some of the kids with their parents. Uh, but the Republicans, I mean, and this isn't partisan, it's just the facts are not allowing any of this legislation uh, to go through. So uh, we need to be bipartisan on giving uh, the resources and priority for 
reunification. The second thing that's so important to realize is while the president has ended the policy of separation, he continues to have a policy of criminally prosecuting people for crossing from crossing the border. This has not been done before, uh, and it is leading to indefinite detention of families. Uh, it's leading to conditions where kids are sleeping on the floors of detention centers. Senator Warren was almost in tears when she was at the detention center. This is not America, and every citizen, regardless of party, should be appalled. Congressman, we wanted to point out this tweet from Clint Smith. He tweeted, I just have a difficult time imagining that any of these people calling for civility would feel the same way if they had their own child taken from them and did not know where they are. So many of these folks have never experienced an ex existential threat to their safety, and it shows. So, Congressman, what do you think about these calls for civility after Maxine Waters' comments to confront Trump's staffers? Well, certainly I agree, none of us can imagine the pain and the horror uh, of uh, people who are having their kids snatched from them, uh, who are uh, being detained in these conditions, uh, and I understand that frustration. Uh, I do think, though, uh, when you come and are elected uh, to serve in uh, the body of Congress, that we want to try to appeal to the better angels of our nature, the, the way that Lincoln uh, encouraged us to. And he said, uh, you know, he uh, fought one of the most righteous wars in the Civil War, uh, but he said we shouldn't have malice towards the Southerners and we need to heal the nation. Uh, that is what Obama did. That is my temperament. So uh, my belief is we should be firm in conviction, uh, but we should look towards uh, healing and, and having uh, conversation. That doesn't mean we don't we compromise our principles. I just think you're going to get further uh, if you approach it in, in that spirit. But uh, certainly I'm not giving that counsel to, uh, to people who are uh, in these dire circumstances. I do think that's the, uh, a good counsel for people who have, uh, are elected to, to represent people in this body. Okay, well, we also wanted to talk about Harley Davidson. Of course, their announcement uh, is that it's shifting some production overseas, and it's the latest of repercussions uh, of Trump's tariffs. Uh, Silicon Valley CEOs, many of whom you deal with, have said that these tariffs would also hurt new startups. So we wanted to ask you, Congressman, would you work with pro-trade Republicans to pass a bill reversing some of these tariffs and tie the president's hands on trade? I would. I mean, and this is a, not just being pro-trade, this is being pro-American worker and American consumer. Let's be very clear of what tariffs do. Uh, tariffs are going to make uh, products more expensive for working families. They're going to uh, hurt our businesses by uh, making it more expensive for us to get parts or products uh, to be able to make things, and they're going to restrict our manufacturers from selling overseas. Uh, this, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs led to the Great Depression. So this is just bad economics. If we want to bring jobs back, we ought to be investing in apprenticeships, in advanced manufacturing, in new technology. Those are... Oh, I think we may have lost the single signal. Looks like we're frozen there. Congressman, can you hear us? Nope, looks like we lost the signal this morning. Having, having some technical difficulties today. <laughs> Listen, it's been a rough morning for all of us here in America. Up, <laughs> oh, he's back, he's back. <laughs> all right, Congressman, you were talking tariffs. Keep it going. We, we gotta do this interview next time from Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> the technical difficulties. 
you know, Washington, what else do you expect? We could barely get uh, our uh, agencies working correctly on technology. It's one of my big things, actually, to how do we get more technology in the nation's capital. But the point is that if you want to create manufacturing jobs in this country, you do it by creating apprenticeships. You do it by uh, investing in technical institutes across America. You do it by subsidizing manufacturing jobs. Uh, that's the German model which has worked for them. You don't do it by uh, slapping tariffs. That seems short-term uh, appealing, but it's not going to do anything long-term to create jobs in communities left behind. All right, Congressman, let's talk tech. Nancy Pelosi tapped you to write the Internet Bill of Rights. But Mark Zuckerberg went through hours of hearings and public scrutiny for what seems like no real consequences recently. Is it really possible to regulate data on the Internet? It is, but we need a competent Congress. We can't have senators asking, how does Facebook make money? I mean, I, I said, I think the initial sentiment was uh, a real criticism of Zuckerberg, as there should have been. And then people saw those hearings and said, wow, it, Congress is uh, really not very knowledgeable about technology or the internet. We need some basic principles. One principle should be that everyone has access to their own data. Uh, just like you have access to your financial data or health data. Uh, if you want to get uh, to know your credit report, you can. If you are at a doctor and you want to get your health information, you can. Well, every American should be able to understand what companies uh, are doing in terms of their data, how they're collecting it, who they're giving it to. There should be sort of a Internet Bill of Rights on every homepage uh, of these tech companies. So I think that the principles are pretty simple. Uh, we just need a Congress willing to act on it and uh, step up to our responsibility. All right, listen, I've seen all these ads from Facebook saying we apologize, also coming out from other social media companies. So I want to ask you directly, Congressman, um, we're going into the midterm elections. Do you trust social media right. companies anymore uh, to, to handle 2018 better than they handled 2016? I think it's going to be better, but I, do I think they've perfected it? No. I mean, I think there's still a huge issue of disinformation on social media. Uh, there's an issue about... Uh, foreign interference that we haven't done enough and the government really hasn't been involved enough in a bipartisan way uh, to make sure those things don't happen. Do I think they have taken some constructive steps? I do. They have more third-party verification. They're aware of how their systems were hacked. They've admitted that those systems were manipulated. Uh, I think some of them are really making a good faith effort to try to solve the problem. But I don't think enough has been done and I don't think Congress has done enough uh, to uh, demand the uh, changes and to support those changes. All right, well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, I always enjoy being on. Appreciate it. Uh, up next, we're gonna hear, I'm sorry, later in the show, we're gonna hear from Chris Geithner uh, to talk more about that Supreme Court decision which shocked a lot of people. Uh, and up next, we're sharing some stunning data on child marriage in America, which, if you can believe it, is still a thing in 48 states. Welcome back. I'm joined by Jessica Testa, BuzzFeed News national reporter, who wrote, child marriage is legal in 48 states. These women are asking why. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Thank you so much for writing this piece, uh, which I found very illuminating, a lot of facts that I didn't know. I want to start with this tweet from Nicholas Kristof, who said, New Jersey has become the second state after Delaware to ban all child marriage with no exceptions. Until this year, 
all 50 states allow children under 18 to marry, in at least some situations, still 48 to work on. So Jessica, what was the road uh, to getting that bill enacted like in New Jersey? So the road started with this activist group called Unchained at Last, which works with women who've experienced forced marriage. They're based in New Jersey, so they thought, let's change the law here in New Jersey, where previously anyone of any age could get married as long as they had parental permission or court permission or some combination of the two. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to ban marriage under 18 with no exceptions. Uh, they helped write a bill, they got it into the legislature, and lawmakers really responded to that. Uh, it passed overwhelmingly, and then Governor Chris Christie last year vetoed it. Wow. Yeah, he said that he worried the bill would violate the cultural and religious traditions of some people in New Jersey. And he also said that, um, you know, if a 16-year-old girl can legally consent to sex or have an abortion, shouldn't she be able to get married as well? Yes. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> so the activists brought it back uh, again this year, same bill. And uh, again, it, it pretty much sailed through with a few minor obstacles. Um, and then it got to the desk of now Governor uh, Phil Murphy, and he signed it on Friday. Which is amazing. And obviously, a lot of the people you spoke with were very excited. I, I want to ask, what loopholes allow for child marriage in America? It's mostly that what I was mentioning earlier, the parental and the court permission. So some states have some combination of the two, or they'll just have one. Um, but it's the parental permission that really concerns activists because there are documented cases of parents pushing a child into marriage, uh, a marriage that she doesn't want or understand, simply with their signature. And so to activists, that's not really permission, that's more coercion. This is, for me, a hard question to ask, but what are the arguments against closing these loopholes or passing a bill like in New Jersey that's just flat out nobody under 18? So lawmakers really like to bring up their own personal stories. They'll say, you know, my parents or my grandparents um, married underage, and look at them. They're so happy. They had a long, healthy marriage. Uh, another group that opposes these bills is often anti-abortion groups who say that they worry that if girls who get pregnant as teens aren't able to marry the father of their children, that they're going to get more abortions and we'll see the abortion rate spike. There isn't really data to support that. Um, but if you ask groups like the ACLU, they actually argue that marriage is a right. And there isn't enough evidence or, or data to support the fact that child marriage is a you know, problem across the board, enough to justify taking away that right. So that it's not a big enough problem yeah. is, is one of the arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got, especially in the current um, climate that we're in, I've got to ask, has the Me Too movement uh, taken this on at all? Uh, is this become an issue that they're heralding? It really hasn't, and activists are hoping that, you know, as the Me Too momentum progresses, that maybe they will take it up. Uh, they're also hoping that as more women lawmakers get elected, either in response to Me Too or as a response to the Donald Trump's presidency, that we're going to see more women legislatures um, supporting these bills. Mm -hmm. You spoke to so many women for your piece who they, themselves uh, were, were married under the age of 18. What did you learn from their stories? I think I learned that there's like a lifelong impact, um, you know, related to child marriage. I think that these girls um, have, like many girls, they have plans and they have ambitions and they have dreams for their life. Mm -hmm. um, and those dreams are completely disrupted when they're married. Uh, there was one girl in my story who she wanted to join the ROTC and go to the Air Force Academy and then go to law school. Instead, she was pulled out of school after her freshman year by her father, who had arranged a marriage um, to a man much older than her. 
she was married, she was pregnant by 16, and her life plan was, was completely derailed from what she thought it was going to be. Uh, eventually, you know, years later, she was able to leave her husband, but she was still, you know, even when she was able to live life on her own terms, she was still playing catch-up. She still had two kids to raise. She still had two kids to raise. Um, what other states, we've seen this bill pass now in New Jersey, and I believe it's Delaware also that yeah. has a, a rule against this. That's 48 stats, states left. Um, are there any states that have bills uh, going through right now, or where are they taking the fight to next? This year, they're really looking at Pennsylvania and Ohio. And those are both states that don't have minimum ages to marry written into their law. And they allow you know, child marriage through those exceptions we were talking about. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see whether Pennsylvania and Ohio sort of fall into this new you know, wave of, of bans that Delaware and New Jersey have started, or if they fall into this old pattern of states you know, compromising and, and being adverse to bans and, and creating exceptions. And, and again, leaving those loopholes open. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much as always for your reporting. Yeah. And, and listen, we're tweeting the story out right now. I highly recommend you read it. Uh, and more AM to DM is coming in just a moment. Welcome back. This is Save the Day brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 Mill. Weezy, you tweeted, I love summertime and all, but this hair does not. Hair care in the summer can be a real struggle. So Patrice Peck, as is beauty writer, is here to help us keep it cute and keep it within our budget. Hey. Good morning, sis. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm so happy you're joining us this morning. Happy to be here. So summertime is here, and as we all know, the hair can be a struggle. Right. So what are some of the biggest hair concerns that we face during the, the summertime? Um, definitely, I would say frizziness, um, heat damage, and also like chemical damage from pools. Ooh. Tell us more about that. Okay, so in terms of pool heat or pool damage, rather, you know, there's chlorine in the water, um, which can be very damaging to hair. So a great tip would be drenching your hair in water before you go into the pool and then putting coconut oil because, you know, oil and water do not mix. So that's going to prevent like that chemical water from oh. the pool from really like damaging your hair. Oh, we love a good hack. Yes. Okay. And so, it's cheap. Oh, yes. We, yes. Okay. We love to save money. Yes. Also, <laughs> so hair care products can get really expensive mm -hmm. really fast. Yeah. So what are ways that we can make sure that we're getting the products that are best for our investments for mm -hmm. our money? Well, there are beauty subscription boxes that exist, right? So you just become a member. So there's Curlbox, there's Birchbox. And what they do is they'll send you like sample size items so you don't have to spend all your money. Invest in products that are full size that you honestly don't even know whether or not they're going to work for you. And another fun thing um, are product swaps with your friends, right? Mm -hmm. So you probably have products that might work for me. They don't work for you and vice versa so we can just get together yes, put on netflix and you know swap we love it awesome yeah. <laughs> so hair is really something that we need to take more advantage of and yeah. heat can really take it like take us for a loop yeah so i want to ask you we have a tweet here it says as a natural hair gal nothing breaks my heart more than seeing severe heat damage on another sister uh so tell us uh what's a good way to protect your hair from heat this summer so the number one way to protect your hair from heat is not to use it, right? Don't use uh -huh. those heat products. Okay. So definitely, like, go for the air drying route if possible. Um, I know that some people can get worried about frizziness, yeah. so I would definitely recommend, you know, investing in anti-frizz products, again, doing the product swap, but also um, doing protective styles, like sleeping in them. So if you have naturally curly hair, mm -hmm. braid it up before you go to bed, put a Bantu knot, um, 
And then when you wake up, just take those down. You're going to have more defined curls without the frizziness. And then in terms of like um, preserving that without the frizz while you sleep, invest in like a satin or silk pillowcase or bonnet or turban. I love that. <laughs> so how else can we stay heat free? Because you know I love my my crown braids. I yes. love to keep it cute. Mm -hmm. So how else can I maximize like keeping my the mm -hmm. heat intact? Because what happens yes. is I see with my hair, mm -hmm. it's like the heat, like the fumes the, and the yeah. heat. What happens with that? Like how can yeah. we keep that from happening? So to protect from sun damage, there are products that actually contain like UV protection. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend um, doing some research on those um, to find out what's best for your hair type. And then also like hats always, um, you know, cute, like a cute head wrap. I did a really cute story about like seven different ways, which you were in, yes. seven different ways to it. rock a head wrap. Yes. Um, so yeah, definitely just like protecting your hair and trying to stay out of the sun is the number one way. Um, yeah. And we have to protect our melanin. We gotta protect yes. it. So, you know, like I mentioned, I love my crown braids and I love going to the salon. However, that can hurt the wallet a oh, little yes, bit. So what are ways that we can make that style last and last mm. longer so we can keep the, 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 the change? Hmm, definitely, like I mentioned before, sleeping with a silk or satin scarf or bonnet okay. because as we sleep you know even if you're the most sound sleeper you're probably going to do some tossing and turning oh, yes. and on that cotton sheet your hair is going to catch to it and it's going to develop some frizzies and so that's why um i always say do a silk or satin um sleeping situation because mm -hmm. then that's going to slip on the hair and your hair is not going to get disrupted in terms of the pattern amazing so when you wake yeah. up your hair is going to just be not frizzy it's yes. going to be good to go yes exactly uh, patrice my queen thank you so <laughs> much for gracing us with these thank gems you for having i'm literally going to take all of this yes take them it's all amazing <laughs> well friends if you have any hair care tips let us know using the hashtag am to dm don't go away when we come back we are celebrating the three-year anniversary of marriage equality yeah Welcome back. Okay, so three years ago today, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Constitution guarantees a right to marriage and to same-sex marriage. With me now is Shannon Keating, BuzzFeed News' LGBT editor. Hi. Hi, Sayed. All right, so listen, from one former LGBT editor <laughs> to a current LGBT editor, we know the 2015 marriage equality rulings were huge and, and a major impact. Um, but of course, I'm struck that that day in 2015, you know, the Supreme Court had another decision which effectively gutted the Voting Rights Act. And as a gay black man, I remember having a sense of, oh, here we are again, kind of looking back on the anniversary of marriage equality three years later, and there's a decision about the travel ban, right? And the LGBTQ community is very expansive, um, and immigration is very much a part of what we think about. So I guess it's just, let's reflect on that. Like, does it feel, looking back, you know, three years later, that we've come a long way or that we've kind of stalled? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's in a lot of ways, it does feel like we've come a long way. Like three years ago definitely does feel like a different era mm -hmm. in many mm -hmm. ways. Uh, but especially after marriage, which was such a, a powerful right. message for LGBT advocates. I mean, love wins is love such wins. an easy, catchable phrase. Right. Like love, marriage is kind of like, you know, a sexy issue, uh -huh. easy to get people on board. Yeah, very relatable. Very, very relatable. relatable, yeah. Everyone, yeah. like love is, a, is an easy message, yes. message to catch on. Absolutely. But after that, I mean, the LGBT movement still had lots of things to grapple with, mm -hmm. from federal protections for LGBT people, right. uh, when it comes to housing, when it comes to public accommodations, right. and um, anti-discrimination laws. And right. it, it, it Trans allowed, rights, like a lot yes, of, a lot yeah. of The bathroom bills really took Phew. off mm -hmm. in the past three years. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that in a lot of ways, the movement has struggled to find the love wins mm -hmm. kind of catchphrase for right. the next wave of LGBT rights. Absolutely. And something to that point that I think is interesting when we think about particularly marriage equality and it's, it's Pride Month is the way corporations mm -hmm. and brands, you know, certainly on anniversary days and, and Pride Month, they love, you know, it's just, it's just like yeah. rainbows everywhere and catchphrases. I saw mm -hmm. like Tony the Tiger <laughs> tweeted about Pride the other day. So I wanted to ask you about that in the wake of the marriage equality decision and, and the 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 nuances and, the, and mm -hmm. the complexities that we're now in, right? That is, there's no easy victories, and there's no, not a lot of relatable, you know, big. Um, what does it feel like having brands and corporations just full on in pride? Yeah, I mean, as you well know, mm -hmm. queer people feel very divided mm -hmm. about the corporatization of pride. Right. I mean, on on the one hand, there were some corporations that you know were supporting their LGBT employees. I mean, long before right. state or federal governments did, right. like. Yeah that some, in some ways some corporations were ahead of the curve, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I mean, you know, there's arguments about pinkwashing the movement right. and arguments that corporations that like supporting, you know, the, the white cis gay man couple right. in their ads mm -hmm. isn't really doing anything for, you know, black trans women of color who are right. the neediest. Right. Uh, members of our community. Right, or an LGBT it. asylum seeker making her way yes. from El Salvador yeah, exactly. or from Syria, you know, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not quite seeing that nuance. Um, also, something I, I thought was interesting, um, BuzzFeed News recently did a really comprehensive study on LGBT culture, lifestyle, mm -hmm. decisions, and again, you know, we don't have a lot of data, you know, to support mm -hmm. how we live, so it was cool. And, and many people um, who responded to the survey said that they are not interested in marriage or children. Um, which is kind of interesting, right? So I, I wondered what your thoughts were on how that kind of syncs up with the legacy of the marriage equality ruling. Yeah, I thought I also thought that, that those findings from the survey were really interesting. Mm -hmm. There were people who are interested in mm -hmm. getting married, but there weren't a lot of people who said definitively, yes, I will get married, mm -hmm. and far less said, yes, I will have children. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people kind of in that middle area being like, maybe I will, maybe yeah. I won't. Which, hey, we get it. Yeah, totally <laughs> fine. I mean, I would say I'm there too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it definitely kind of gives the message that, I mean, especially three years after marriage, this is no, marriage is no longer, and arguably might not have ever been, you know, the everyday LGBT person's number one priority. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, uh, if, if it was less that it was like the number one priority mm -hmm. for the average LGBT person in America, and more that it was like the core relatable issue yes. that, that people felt that they could galvanize ground support because mm -hmm. that did happen, right? Love wins, like kind of transcended yeah. a lot of, um, and that there was a hope that from that there would be a waterfall kind of into more nuanced issues. Exactly, yeah. but but what we're finding now, I mean, just, just yesterday uh, we saw that the case of a florist mm -hmm. in Washington State, right. um, Supreme Court punted mm -hmm. the case back down to the courts in Washington mm -hmm. saying that they didn't want to quite get into the issue of whether or not a Christian florist had the right to deny service to a gay couple right. for making a floral arrangement for mm -hmm. their wedding. Um, and they similarly ruled narrowly in the case of a Colorado baker mm -hmm. um, just a few weeks ago um, who similarly was a Christian who denied right. service to a gay couple for making a cake. And I think that's that religious freedom is is going to be the 
kind of the main issue that Absolutely. the LGBT movement has to I agree. And listen, now. I know, like, Chris Geithner, who we're going to speak to, I believe, in a little bit, has said this, that it, it feels analogous to Roe v. Wade, like a landmark decision for, you know, um, reproductive rights, and then mm -hmm. the sense in the decade sense of it kind of being chipped away. And I think we're, we're, maybe we're seeing a faster iteration of that from, you know, the 2015 decisions to now religious freedoms. I guess I just, like, listen, I know this is not the most hopeful conversation to have <laughs> no. on the third Ooh, anniversary, yeah. but we, I think we have to remember that, that the LGBT movement is dynamic and something that's happening day to day. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. we do not have the luxury of, like, resting on our laurels and, like, oh, yeah, wasn't it great? You know, yeah. a few years ago or whatever. Oh, certainly not. A lot of work left to be done. Left to be done. Well, you know, as always, Shannon, thank you for the work you do with LGBT here at BuzzFeed. Um, and thanks for joining us because everything is happening this it morning. Is. Anyway, in a moment, we'll have more AM to DM. Friends, this is your push alert. Aaron Blake tweeted this. SCOTUS says Trump has authority to bar not just specific classes of people, but entire nationalities. Here to talk about the Supreme Court's decision to uphold President Trump's travel ban is BuzzFeed Supreme Court correspondent Chris Geithner. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Said. How are you? <laughs> I am very polite and civil. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Chris, let's, let's start with the basics. What does this ruling yeah. mean? I mean, what we had this morning was, uh, I, I mean, it can't really be put any other way. It was a, a complete win for the Trump administration on this third iteration of the travel ban, the, the narrow, more narrow travel proclamation that he issued uh, in September of last year uh, that, that came out of the, the first two travel ban executive orders that faced challenges from courts. Uh, but on this one, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision today said that Trump had authority under the law to do it and that the, uh, that the travel ban didn't violate the Establishment Clause as anti-Muslim discrimination. Okay. Uh, Justice Kennedy wrote a concurring opinion. How did he justify upholding the travel ban? I mean, he, he basically said, I, I joined the opinion, uh, and just because somebody has the authority to do it because a lot of the decision was based on like this is this is a, a an area where the president has a lot of authority and some of it, it comes pretty close to being uh, unreviewable because the the court is so deferential to that authority and what he said is is just because you have the ability to do something doesn't mean that you shouldn't be focused on the constitutional concerns that your actions might raise. Hmm. All right. Well, listen, David Mack tweeted, Sotomayor directly says the travel ban decision is as bad as the court upholding Japanese internment. Uh, Chris, is, are, is this yeah, decision this, comparable? This is uh, uh, played a Korematsu, the decision that, that upheld the validity of internment camps during World War II uh, has, has been a through line of most of these debates over the travel ban at courts. And the Supreme Court today overruled Korematsu, this old decision. They formally, in the majority opinion, said we overrule Korematsu. It was wrong. We should, however, which she was joined by. And, and she says, you know, that, that's great. Like, we're, we're glad you did that. Uh, but 
replacing what you've done today, she said, and she read this from the bench, is to replace one wrong decision with another. Um, and so she, she argued, and, and again, Justice Ginsburg joined her, that this is, is just as, as bad a decision that, that she said should, should stay with the court as a, a, a poor legacy of, of this court. Okay, well, Chris, one last question. Um, speaking of the law, where do people who were concerned about the travel ban, some people have called it a Muslim ban, of course, where do where does it, the conversation go from here? Is there any recourse? Is there any opportunity for repeal? I mean, th this is, th there have been notes, and, and the Chief Justice actually, in his opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts, in his opinion, upholding this third iteration, noted that the, the, that several countries have been removed from this most recent ban and that there are waivers for this most recent ban, although the, the breadth of those waivers has been called into question. There was an article in Slate a couple weeks ago about this. And the, the, but the, the, the fact is that there is a lot of language. You look at Justice Kennedy's concurring opinion, obviously, if you combine him with the dissenters, that's five votes. There are questions. The, the court made it clear that a president can go too far. And it's possible that if the first or second travel ban, if, if Trump had stayed with it, if they hadn't narrowed it down, that one of those two bans or both of them would have been declared unconstitutional. And so I, I think while it's clear that the, the third travel ban, the court said this is okay, uh, it's also clear that, that the president had to back up so far from I mean, obviously what he was arguing during the campaign as a, a complete and total shutdown, uh, the, the first ban's breadth, the second ban a little more narrow, that the third ban is what made it. So I, I, I think that, that while today's ban, while the, the September proclamation ban was upheld, I think it is important to note that the courts did pull back from what Trump had originally proposed. Okay. Oh, and I all think right. Looks like we dropped Chris him for a second there. Well, uh, Chris, thank you for joining I'm, us. I'm this... here. <laughs> oh, you're back. <laughs> Go ahead and finish your thought, Chris. I'm, I'm back. I, I, I mean, I, I just think I, this is obviously a, a matter that everybody's going to be looking at what these decisions are saying and what they mean for the future. Uh, and and I, I think the, the real message is that there were a lot of concerns and that those concerns led courts to push back on, obviously, last January's ban and the, the later March ban that did lead to a much more narrow ban that was did go through process and review from the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department. And, and Chief Justice Roberts really pinged the constitutionality of this and the fact that this was allowed under laws authorized by Congress on the fact that it had gone through this this process and it wasn't just Trump freelancing on his own like he had done with the first ban. All right. Well, Chris, uh, thanks for joining us this morning, especially on such I, short notice. I did note one last thing. Uh, it is the anniversary of, of Obergefell, as you guys were just talking, and you should note that out in front of the court there is still a, a protest about that ruling and a, a counter protest from LGBT people. So it, it is still an issue today. <laughs> very much so, very much so. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Bye-bye.
All right, um, we have a tweet here from Rachel Hey Girlfriend. AM to DM is having a lot of technical difficulties today. I feel like it's a metaphor for the state of the country. Mm. Uh, Rachel, I say mood. Uh, when we come <laughs> back, it's time for At Us. <laughs> into these tweets, darlings. We had uh, we asked some of you for civil disobedience that inspired you because everything is going on. Monica Rooney, great suggestion. You pointed to the Tank Man in Tiananmen Square. Yes, great thank one. you. Yes, people absolutely. were like, "Oh, you're you're interrupting them. So <laughs> let them carry on about the, their merry." Tanks way. have feelings. You should be more polite <laughs> to the tanks. Be uh, more polite to the crazy. tanks. That's Abs a great example. Thank you for pointing to that. Absolutely. And Sarah Murphy shared a whole thread of people that inspired her. Here's one of her comments: "This has been a really good point of reflection this morning. So much history of people, whether organized or spontaneous, standing up and fighting back. And yeah. I'd recommend you kind of read the whole thread." She shared a lot of great people on it. And it drives me, I just, it feels like, just like insulting to have to remind people what is like right there in history books. And I feel that we should have a civil discourse where we know this, a civil discourse where we know this. The civil rights movement was incredibly unpopular. Those people wearing suits and sitting at kitchen counters and doing all these things that you, that are now framed as like a polite and Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't want you, you know, talking to Sarah Huckabee. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Like these people were not treated well. It was incredibly unpopular at that time. And I think it's important to remind, remember that as people try to point back as like, that's how it should be. Well, that's how it was. And it still didn't have the best outcome. Mm -mm, absolutely. And stop, stop using his quotes. Super, super stop using Super stop using We can quotes. tell when you're just like pulling from like quote.com or mm. whatever. It's so mm. obvious. Mm. Anyway, uh, another point from Sarah Bella. She said this, ridiculous how the same people who slammed PC culture and mocked many of us for being social justice warriors are now calling for civility. Do they hear themselves well? And here's the thing, I think they do hear themselves. This is, we were talking about this with Sarah Huckabee yeah. Sanders. I think these are very like it's strategy. planned. Yeah. It's strategy. Yeah. It's strategy to know that they can use this language, co-opt this language, and change the narratives on these discussions. And they don't care about, well, I was saying this yesterday and I'm saying this today. They care about winning. Yeah, and I, I have to say, you know, it was great having Congressman Ro Khanna on and saying that, you know, he feels for the people who are actually in this situation, in that case, parents who are separated from their children. He feels that, it seemed like he was just saying that they are entitled mm -hmm. uh, to, to their outrage and speaking out, but I'm like, we can't access them. Like, they don't have access to the press right now. So I think that's why other people feel the need to turn up the volume on their behalf. Amen. That's what I was saying. Anyway, thank you to Congressman Ro Khanna for joining us this morning. Ryan Broderick from Mexico City, Zara Hirji, Jessica Testa, Chantal Fallins, Patrice Peck, Shannon Keating, and Chris Geithner. Thank you all, because it was a morning, children. It, it was a oh. morning, and it's only <laughs> Tuesday. We will be back here tomorrow, Wednesday, 10 a.m. We will keep this conversation going, and we will see you there. Phew!